0: And now, here are your hosts, Katie Beth and Stan. Welcome to the Legacy Leaders Podcast with your host, Stan Miller. Joining me today is tax and business attorney, Jeffrey Katz. Jeffrey, thank you for the time today. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Stan. It's a pleasure to be here with you on your show today.
0: I want to get a little background. I've read your resume, and you've done some pretty impressive things. Tell me, what what was it that initially motivated you to, to get into this space, the you know, the the estate planning, business planning space?
1: Sure. Hey, Stan, that's a great question. When I got out of law school, I went to work for a big sixth accounting firm at BPMG. It's kind of my my first gig out of, out of school. And so within that, that first year, I was working on major MA activities, working with C-level execs, I'm really kind of getting my hands dirty and you know, sleeves rolled up on, on some of the then the most interesting and innovative tax products. Uh, that were being sold and implemented by the company. Unfortunately, the first three M&A projects I worked on, two of them were great. The last didn't work out that well. That was MCI WorldCom, which turned out to be the biggest fraud in the history of public accounting. And so shortly thereafter, the team that I was working on was disbanded, and all the attorneys and CPAs were sort of set to the four corners of the proverbial tax universe. Some people went to Deloitte, some people went to Anderson, uh, and I went found myself back into private practice. So but, but having had that taste of you know sort of the corporate world and also working with you know high level execs you know Fortune 50 companies, I really saw there was a need for the level of service that, that you know KPMG could provide, but not at the cost that KPMG was, was building on it. So I sort of recognized early on that, that you know people really needed these services, and that while they were available to you know the sort of upper echelon of corporate personnel, that there's a big marketplace out there that wasn't really being served. I went to work for a smaller firm. A gentleman who who was actually shared the same lesson that I did, but we actually weren't related. Uh, but everyone thought I was his son. They said, "Oh my gosh, you got you're in the, the family practice, and you know you work for Mister Cats, and it's me, Cats and Cats." And, and so, but I got this sense of like nepotism um, with no relationship, like like <laughs> whatsoever. And so right. I had the burden of people thinking that I got the job because I was related when I wasn't related. And, and actually, like a lot of work we were doing was was we had some. some Interesting families that we were working with, but, but by and large, it was kind of a you know mom and pop operation. But literally, like like the guy and his wife worked there, his grandchildren. I mean, it, uh, they were all family members that, that were involved in. Uh, it just wasn't the type of practice that I wanted to be in. So in twenty uh, in two thousand uh, September, I kind of you know went out on my own and started the, the JD Katz practice with a, a subleased office in a family law practitioner space in Bethesda, Maryland. And within a couple of weeks, I had been awarded a receivership on the circuit court. So here I am at 2728, knowing nothing about running construction firms. The local court here gave me a whole construction company to manage. And so the next thing I knew, I had 45 employees. I was handling payroll and infrastructure and contracting and you know, kind of winding their way through. And these guys had, had massive tax liabilities, tax exposure, They were all sorts of terrible things. And so I was running this construction company, plus building out the, the estate planning and corporate side of the practice, all simultaneously with no help. I had no staff, it was just me, and I was just sitting there cranking out. Within a month, I actually wanted to hire staff because I couldn't handle all the work that, that I generated.
0: And yeah, just hearing that story makes me feel overwhelmed. That sounds, I mean, just that one project alone sounds like a, an 18 hour day job, actually. <laughs> But I'm looking at your website. It looks like in the time that you've had your own firm, you've really grown it. You've got quite an impressive team there. I didn't count up the number, but just the attorneys you have relationships with. It's a quite an entourage.
1: I'd say it's a motley crew. Yeah, I mean, we've got our full you know cadre of, of characters in here. So we've got you know estate planning, we've got tax, we've got corporate, we have litigation and real estate, and so we've really been able to build out you know by bringing in sort of key personnel and, and practices over the years to. to really help facilitate and give full service to all of our clients.
0: And notice that you uh, have, have an office, your office your, I guess your primary office is in Bethesda, right? But did I see a K, a K Street office?
1: Right, yeah. So we actually have uh, sublease space from a, a large law firm on K Street. So we're literally down the street from the White House. And uh, we get calls from folks who work in government and they want to meet with us down there. And so we had actually been doing meetings down in K Street, pre-pandemic, and now everybody wants to come on Zoom. Nobody actually wants to go to their office you know, talk to people who, who are working government offices, you know, on K Street. And I say, oh, well, your office is only a block away from our downtown office. And they come back and say, well, that was great to have pre-pandemic. But we've been working from home for the last 18 months. <laughs> so Zoom is great.
0: But where I was going with that is uh, I was, was going to boldly assume that because you have this K Street connection, that you have a, a better than average year to the ground about what was coming down the pike. In terms of tax law changes, and 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 because my practice is, I would say, more focused on the estate planning side than business planning side, and I just want to ask me what what sort of intel, what's your sense about what's going to happen to the estate tax exemption come twenty twenty six, and other in other changes that were
1: yeah, you know I just... that's that's really a great question. You know, we talk to folks, you know, in in government. All the time, and so well, no one has a crystal ball. You know, the, the even money is that if the Democrats are in power, it's going to expire. And if the Republicans come back in, they're going to extend. And so, you know, you have, I think, a certain hostility right now with with the Congress and the, and the current you know regime that's in place, where you know a lot of this is viewed as sort of the legacy of the Trump presidency, where they pushed this through, and you know, the current winds really don't blow in favor of you know the enhanced. Exemption amounts. And so there is a real risk. We believe, I and mean, we're actually advising our clients now to, to plan as though the, that expiration will take place. And if it doesn't, that's great. But the IRS has already said that if you're out there making gifts now that would have been taxable gifts after January 2026, they're not going to claw back that tax saving. And so right. we believe that this is really the best opportunity because no one has a crystal ball. We don't know what's going to happen down the road, but we do know that this is probably the best opportunity right now. To go ahead and fully utilize the exemptions as they currently stand. And I would like to say, you know, hopefully, hey, we're we're hopeful, we're optimistic that those exemptions will stay in place. But the reality is, is that, you know, we've got a potential, you know, change in government. We may may not have the votes to get that through as far as an extension. And you know, the view in terms of who's paying these estate taxes are that you know you're looking at a very, very small subset of the population who are you know, viewed as being entitled or not necessarily. Having earned those funds, and really, this is an opportunity for the government to stoke those people. And you know, from the position of a politician, you know, estate taxes are a great place to raise revenue because the folks who are paying it aren't voting because, by definition, they're dead.
0: And that's even more true with the generation skipping tax, right? Because you know, there's there's no payoff after for all the all the noise I hear about changing that. There's no money in that for another fifty years. So, what else do you see happening out there? You know, just. You know, I'm, I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity because I worked in D.C. when I was in law school, but that was a long time ago. I just know that when you hang out, you guys talk a lot. I'm just curious to hear what what else you know, what else is uh, what else is ferment?
1: I mean, I, I think you see a lot of trial balloons that, that are getting tossed out where people are, are talking about, you know, wealth tax. You know, what does that look like? You know, how do you start taxing tax people based on assets they have, not assets that they're selling uh, or realizations? And so uh, I think that that's being bandied about. By some of the interest groups, some of the, the folks on the hill. I think, you know, moving to that type of regime or, or type of implementation requires a lot of infrastructure that's not currently in place right now. You've got to have valuations, you've got to be able to go back in and you know, start really trying to figure out, well, where do we have funds coming into it to cover these tax liabilities? I think that there's more of a focus on folks who have accumulated wealth who then are not necessarily having realization events. And there's a thought that, hey, this is unfair when you have you know, the Bezoses or the Beckerman of the world who are out there with you know the Amazon stock or the Facebook stock and they don't need to sell the stock they have so much value in the stock that you know they can just borrow against it and so for a long time you know the strategy that, that a lot of estate attorneys promoted were, was you know buy and die buy the office building buy the stocks buy whatever run up the value borrow against it never have a realization event get that step up of data at the end of data death. And then, hey, that stepped up the debt value. Guess what? That thing gets brought back down by all the debt you put on it. So you've never paid income tax on it, and you've never paid a state tax on that asset. And so, you know, some of this, the suggestions you're seeing is, actually, hey, why don't we cap out the amount of money that we allow to step up, or the amount of assets that we allow to step up? And that may also be gaining in more popularity because of these buy and die strategies. And so, you know, while those have been around for a long time, I think they're increasingly being viewed as abusive. In the sense that you know, there's so much money that's not being taxed and there's so much you know, value out there, but this is potentially a good opportunity to grab those assets. One of the other problems that we've seen and that they've been trying to resolve is the enforcement. And so the IRS is an agency that has been under tremendous political scrutiny for the last 10 years. The Republicans have hated the IRS It's the Tea Party you know, audits that have consistently gone and cut the agency's budget again and again and again. We actually just saw recently there was a whole article on an IRS processing center in Fresno, California, where people were manually taking apart tax returns in a lunchroom. They had, they, they don't have enough space, physical space. They actually don't have computer scanners, and so they're manually key punching in all the data, and you wonder why it takes six to eight months to get a refund when you send in a manual return. Um, the agency has lost a lot of its its legacy employees. They're running on computers that are older than I am. Some of them are running in, in ancient languages, and no one has heard. And so they, over the last year, they've gotten the opportunity to get you know more funding. The Biden administration pushed through more funding, and that has been you know kind of clawed back over the last year because there's a concern that they're going to add that to enforcement and that that they're going to start going after you know sort of mom and pop business owners to increase the audits. The audit rate now is at an all-time low. And frankly, the agency does not have the manpower to go out and enforce the code. They don't have the infrastructure, they don't have the computer systems. And frankly, you know, they've got a terrible reputation as a place to work. So it's they're having a hard time hiring. Uh, in places like the service centers, they're up there competing against Target and, and Starbucks for employees. And you know, if you could go to the Starbucks, you get free coffee. You go to Target, you get 20% off. You go to the IRS, you just get paper cuts. I mean, there, there's really not a lot to do you see. Yeah. So I, I think that, you know. There's a need for revenue. There's a need for an agency that goes ahead and enforces the law. That they, you're seeing a perception that there is unequal enforcement of the law, that audits in many cases are being targeted towards certain demographics or individuals. And so you're looking at an agency that's in a lot of turmoil that, that has a bad rep and that needs to get past that, you know, to, to really be successful. And frankly, as practitioners, right, you know, we need to, to have an agency that people respect and that, you know. Provides equal administration of the law, consistent administration of the law, and allows us to, you know, go ahead and put in appropriate levels of planning for our, our clients. That we're not worried that they're going to come back in and sort of, you know, lollygag in terms of enforcement, or you know, enforce in such a manner that targets, you know, you know, per- perceived abuses from folks who are doing things like buy and die or you know, making you know, lifetime gifts.
0: You know, one of the targets that the RS level for what, 20-plus years has been valuation discounts on on entities. you have a take on on, on where that's headed?
1: I don't think that for, from an agency perspective that's changed at all. And I think that they're continuing to go in and attack, you know, lack of marketability, lack of control, accrued capital gains discounts. I think that we've seen more enforcement on the uh, captive insurance side where the agencies come out and issued some very you know, aggressive position statements in terms of what they will and won't do. And they're basically saying, hey, these are now listed transactions. If you do it, you're going to get audited. It's a a transaction agency has never liked. Unfortunately, you know, there are some good captives out there and there's some bad captives out there and they've just thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Said, hey, you know, we don't want to see this for wealth transfer. We don't want to see this as being sold as tax scheme. And, you know, they're trying to really go back in and legislate in such a way that Congress never really intended with respect to these, these, you know, captives.
0: What are you advising clients now about? Because you know, captives do captives. You know, can can really provide you know, a lot of real value there. What what you under, what's your advice to clients these days on captives?
1: My first question is always: Is there a need for insurance? Like, is there a need that's out there? You know, does the client have an esoteric risk that's not being met in the marketplace? Do they have a premium where they're paying too much? Well, we've gone back and we've looked at these for for workers' comp claims. We've looked at them for. Liability, and there are you know many instances where you know these do provide a good solution. But fundamentally, there's got to be a need, a real insurance need to go out and look at a captive. Folks are coming and saying, "Well, I'm looking to shelter money, or I'm looking to you know uh, limit my liability for taxes." We will highly discourage them from looking at a captain. The the motivation is wrong, and frankly, you know they don't have a justification to be in that type of product or fully understand or comprehend what they're getting into because it's very hard to get out of a captain once you're in. You you need to run a trust company for some period of time, and you really need to go in and. Operate that in a way that is is business-like. and so you know, for those people who have the liability or they have the risk, or let's say we have a retailer client who's out there, maybe they're selling, you know, uh, warranties. I mean, those types of things that may make sense. For a example, we actually we had a client years ago. They were a, uh, a landlord. They had hundreds and hundreds of apartment complexes, and one of their promotions that they used to do is was give away they give away a free rent lump well, when you signed a lease. But they had all these losses. They had people who were breaking into the apartment. so. We talked. We said, "Hey, instead of offering a free month of rent, why don't you offer a free year's worth of, of uh, renters insurance?" It's, it's going to cost you the same, but now you have coverage when there's losses. So they went back in. They created their own captive insurance company. They started issuing these, you know, renters policies to their their tenants. But they weren't free. They were actually paying for them. They were paying money to the capital to cover the cost of the insurance. And lo and behold, when they had losses, like the renters insurance company would come in and they would go ahead and they would reimburse the client as well as the renter for those those losses. And so it was a great strategy. It was a great, you know product for them. And it made a lot more sense for them than offering that, that month of for rent. So that's the type of instance where, you know, again, this is a, a useful skill. It's, it's a useful sort of add-on to them. And it really differentiated them in the marketplace because other, you know, entities weren't offering the same type of product. They were requiring renters insurance, but then they were saying, well, you go buy it at your own cost.
0: That's actually a clever, clever use in the captain. That's, that's interesting. Shifting gears a bit, you know, I, I feel like I'm maybe taking advantage here because yeah, I don't get to DC and I don't get to hang around, you know, and 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 have and have dinner with lobbyists and get a sense of what's going on. So I'm gonna say, taking advantage of this opportunity. But while I'm while I'm there, let me ask you about where do you come down on on 453 transactions, you know, monetized installment sale? Because you know those have been really popular, but you know the IRS, you know, it has gone after those as well. You know, along with uh, conservation easement partnerships, multi pension trusts. You know, are, are, there, are there strategies, you know, tax strategies out there that, that are just too radioactive that you tell clients stay away from them, or there, are there strategies that are worth the risk?
1: So one of the things, when I, when I was at KPG, we used to sell captive. We used to sell, you know, royalty companies. We'd sell leasing companies. We did Jeffrey-style IP leasing, where we would set up, you know, if Jeffrey the giraffe from Toys R Us, we would drop the IP into, you know, one state. And then we would pay license fees. And that was done on a state level as opposed to a federal level to, to minimize state income taxes as opposed to federal. That transaction got moved offshore, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And now it's sitting in Luxembourg or you know the Grenadines. And so US companies are using that to, to limit their you know payments on US corporate taxes as opposed to state income tax. And so those are the types of things where you know offshore transactions are, are ones that we are not necessarily big fans of because we think they're getting increased scrutiny. Transfer pricing where you know you don't have arm's length pricing between the, the you know parent company and the subsidiary. Um, the famous case was Bosch and where the contact lenses were all being run through an Irish subsidiary and then they were picking up 95% of the profits and five percent were was being picked up in the United States. So those are the kinds of things where you know you're gonna wind up with potentially a reallocation. And frankly, you know, we, we always look at what we call the smell test. If it doesn't smell right, it probably isn't. So we would rather our clients come in and say, well, you know we're going to try to do some paper cuts here as far as you know tax planning, as opposed to trying to bleed out an artery. And so we do two things. One is we can justify the planning. The planning is implemented as part of the overall business process, as opposed to tax planning. So selling tax planning for, for the purpose of reducing taxes is not a great way. But having a business purpose that is not, the prime purpose is not to reduce tax, goes a long way towards modifying auditors and agents and going back in and, and trying to understand. One of the challenges we see is that a lot of these agents don't have the level of experience, they haven't been in, at this long enough, and they sort of go back and they, they view, you know, every, um, every problem as a nail, and then they think of themselves as the hammer, they're, they're there to bang away at it. And so, you know, part of our job is just educating the auditors who are going through these transactions and, and giving them a you know, perspective as to what's happening and why these transactions are taking place, that they view them you know, with the independent significance. But again, like we always just talk about playing audit roulette, when I was at KPMG, we used to say we don't play, we don't play audit roulette. Because the question here isn't what happens if you get audited. The question is what happens when you get audited? How will you show up in that audit? Will this transaction you know survive or will it not survive? And so the better prepared, you know, the client can be, the more they've gone through and thought about the process and said, Well, how does this integrate with my business? And is this something that's being sold solely for tax purposes, or is this something that has a real business purpose? The better they're gonna do in the outcome. And so Tax attorneys really can't work in, a, in silence. They have to be involved with the business folks. They need to be involved with the accountants up front. They need to be asking the right questions and integrating that on a granular basis, right? So even if, you know, there may have been a tax motivation at some point, but there's also a business purpose, right, for that transaction.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense to me. Let me ask you, you've been at this for a while. What would you say is the distinction how you approach client relationship? What is it that you... What is it that you think is distinctive about the way you do
1: I think clients fundamentally know that that we care. Like, so so the thing is like, I didn't go to law school because I wanted to be a lawyer. I I was a business guy who wanted a law degree. And so when we come in, we work with a business client or or a personal family client, we're there saying, hey, you know, we view this as a business transaction first and foremost, and and we understand what your goals and objectives are. So it's not the tax tail wagging the dog. It's really, you know, getting the client, understanding their motivations, understanding their values, Understanding their mission, you know, trying to understand their mindset in terms of what's getting them from point A to point B, what's motivating them, what are their fears, what are their concerns, and being able to take all that and put that into whatever the advice is. And so, you know, we're looking at it not just at a very superficial level, but we're really trying to deep dive with that client as early as possible. And the, the irony is that you know I've been doing this for gosh, 23 years now. I still have clients who call me for, from the first year of my practice who are coming back for more work, and we've had you know same clients who come back. Again and again and again for, for transactions. And over the last twenty years, you know we've grown the practice out. I mean, we literally have tens of thousands of clients right now. But there's no client who's too small for me to talk to. Like, like you know, I can have a client with a thousand dollars worth of legal work, and you know, they only get on the phone with me. I pick up the phone and I'm happy to chat with them and help them through the process. And then you're know, during that call, so I'll let them know what my rate is. I'll say, well, "Are you sure you really want to talk to me?" Because I'm happy to talk to you, but you know, when the bill comes, I don't want to hit sticker shot. We've got some really great attorneys here who can do you know. Maybe not as good a job, but but almost as good a job as I can do it at you know half the cost. You know, and I'll, I'll review it anyway before it goes out. I may not even charge you to look at it. Are you sure you want to talk? Some a classic. yeah, too. Some a say well, I appreciate you know you're picking the and why don't you hand it over to the associate at this point, so we're happy to do that as well.
0: You know, Jeffrey, you, you may be too young to have even thought about this yet, but but if you fast forward another twenty or twenty five or thirty years, and you're really reflecting back on your professional practice over over your entire career, what is it that you would like your legacy to be?
1: And that's a great question. And so I, I often ask people that, you know, if you were to put three three words on your tombstone, what would it be? And I always say, you know, father, husband, and friend. And so I, I think, you know, if, if you really get into, you know, helping people along and you're there, not for the transaction, you're there for the journey, I really do think that, that people appreciate that. And it's so hard, you know, there's so many transactions that we get into, You'll come in on a transactional basis, knowing that you've got the attorney who's there, who's going to be there for you. And even if, if I'm not the guy that's there, that you know, my values my legacy have been imbued through the practice and that the folks that we've hired come in and support that same legacy, it's really meaningful to me. And knowing that we've made that impact, not only on the clients, but also people who work for us and their
0: family. Good answer. And, uh, and I, I think that's, that's a great legacy, actually. So um, uh, what questions have been not asked? What are the things uh, you know, do our listeners need to hear from you?
1: Yeah. So, you know, over the, over the last probably 20 years, we've really changed our business. And I think, you know, attorneys have, as a profession, attorneys have an obligation to continue to evolve as the law evolve. And so we've done that both personally and for our practice. We've really embraced technology here to make ourselves more accessible. Over the last couple of years, Zoom has really become our default standard for intakes. And so one of the things we've found is we've been able to Substantially increase the number of uh, intakes we're taking on. I think this year we may do something between 550 and 600 estate plans. And so, you know, that's a huge volume. And so, you know, we've had to adapt not only to the fact that we're doing this increased volume, but also in terms of our production. And so, how are we producing documents? Are we doing them in a consistent manner? How are we delivering, you know, that A experience? Or if you think about Disney World, you know, the old Space Mountain or, or uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, those are called e-ticket attractions. So, we try to give our, our clients a ticket experience here, you know, by exceeding expectations, by, you know, embracing technology, by making ourselves accessible. So some things we've done is we have online calendaring. Clients can go in, they can pick a time, set themselves up when they do that, but obviously get a questionnaire for their intake. And then we'll get a series of reminders. And so we, not only do we call people, if it's calls people, it also texts them, it emails them. And so we use a 25% no notion, clients would forget about their appointments. They would, you know, they weren't prepared. And our 25% no-show rate went down to 0%. We actually only had one client last year who, who didn't attend their, their consult. The reason they hadn't attended is because they were in the hospital today. They had their, their actual consult. So they had gotten ill and weren't able to make it. So you know, we're, we're trying to leverage technology to really make ourselves accessible. We're using you know, AI systems now to help with legal research. Uh, we're using that to go back in and, and, again, accelerate sort of what we're doing. I think that that's making us more efficient. It gives us better output, better products. And so, you know, we're, we're trying to make use of what we can in the way of technology to really, you know, enhance that client experience and deliver that, you know, thinking experience every client, every time.
0: That's, uh, you know, you're an inspiration. You know, the, I mean, actually, you're taking mental notes, uh, you know, and so um, some of these things, uh, you know, I'm going to have a team meeting with my own team about it and I'm going to have them watch this video. So, so I really appreciate the time today. this has actually been, been I will say for me, this has been really Really useful, really, really, really useful. And uh, I would say to our listeners, if you want to know more about Jeffrey and his firm, you can go to his his, uh, website, which is, uh, by the way, a great website. I spent some time on it. You you guys have done a really terrific job with that. I think it's clear, informative. There's some great resources there. It's uh, jdcats.com. Did I get that right?
1: Yep. J is in Juliet, D is in Delta, K is in Kilo, is in Alpha, T is in Tango, Z is in Zulu. Jeffrey, yep. uh, JDKatz.com. Find yep. my military alphabet uh, for you.
0: Yeah. Well, great. So so let me just say to our audience, thank you for listening. This has been the Legacy Leaders Podcast with your host, Stan Miller. Our guest today was Jeffrey Katz. For more information, you can go to his website, jdkatz.com, and uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So thank you. Thank you all for listening.
1: Thanks, Stan. Appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to the Legacy Leaders Podcast with Katie Beth Hand and Stan Miller. For more information on them and the show, please visit PinnacleLegacyLaw.com. If you like what you've learned today, do share the program with your friends and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.